Chickity chine of the Chinese chicken. Chickity chine of the Chinese chicken. Chickity chine of the Chinese chicken. Chickity 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 Alrighty, folks. Welcome back to the Mushing Alaska podcast. We're your hosts, Brendan and Sean. And well, <clears throat> you got to forgive me. Like, you know, I'm sitting here on like week number two of, of sickness. I can't even mm-hmm. like, I can kind of, I can kind of smell right now. But uh, yeah, you know. I'm trying to get these podcasts out every two weeks and uh well this intro thing that we're doing right now we're like we got to do that before we put it out and the last few days has been a little bit rough on your boy so uh there is that but anyways sean how's it going man you know you don't need to highlight some of the shortcomings of our podcast i think there's a lot of positive things that we could talk about you know the fact that we're doing this with like ours and our free time you know it's not like i mean you might think we're making six figures doing this but we're actually not and um you know we're sometimes sometimes you get sick sometimes it snows three feet in four days and you know sometimes you can't you can't make it your deadlines and when you don't get you know when you're not making you don't have a boss you know we're the boss. So we can just be like, you know what? Let's just do it Tuesday, Wednesday. I don't feel like doing it today. Let's do it tomorrow. You know, it's perks of the job. Perks. I don't know about that, but uh, nonetheless, uh, that's why it's kind of getting out a couple of days later than we like to do. But uh, with that being said, um, you know, race season is upon us and mm. um, our, mm. our regular uh, podcast every two weeks is probably going to, probably going to start turning them out a little bit quicker um not necessarily going to put a specific like once every week you know through the iditarod or anything but uh more episodes are coming at more frequency than what you've been receiving them at so to your phone or laptop and this is like you know every time we ask someone to subscribe i feel like a part of my soul dies because it's just like oh yeah like don't forget to like and subscribe. It's like, oh my God, like I hate to say that out loud. I just hate it. But having said that. On that note, if you subscribe. Bitches, you better like and subscribe <laughs> us, you, damn it. If you subscribe and we have not, you know, done our schedule appropriately, maybe we didn't come out on the exact day that we want to. It doesn't matter because you're subscribed and you get a notification when a new episode drops. Damn, you know what I mean? As soon as it happens. So, you know, technically we don't even really need to have a schedule if you just subscribe. Like and subscribe. You know, I'll stop saying it. I'll stop. I, we said it too many times. That was like five too many times. Well, that was like six too many times. Six too many times. Anyway, so yeah, uh, last time I spoke with you, you were talking about, you know, doing your skating and like this is like, an unusual amount of skating. Well, I, I guess me over here in Georgia, I call it wild skating because you're like going on, I don't know, like ponds and things that are frozen and stuff. But um, I think that season is over. 
Sure is. Um, and so, you know, then you were like, oh, man, I'm excited. The snow, it just started falling. And mm. our cousin Miles, uh, I saw him posted something about snowpocalypse. And for me, it's funny because uh, Georgia here in Atlanta, we had a, a snowpocalypse. And if you're not watching us, I'm air quoting that we had a snowpocalypse. And uh, it was a joke. Um, Essentially, it it was like we had snow, then it melted, then it refroze as ice. And then a little bit of snow fell on top of that and people freaked out. It was ridiculous. Um, Now, I got lost in all that to say, I think of my experience of snowpocalypse of 2014 in Atlanta, Georgia, which really wasn't nothing. Uh, and then our cousin sitting there posting snowpocalypse uh, in Alaska. And I'm just like, in my head, I'm just like, I'm trying to like fathom what that even means. Yeah, I, I could give you an idea. I mean, it's like <clears throat> in Anchorage, you know, I don't know. It's, there's Alaska is a big place. So, you know, but it's South Central Alaska, which is where Anchorage is and Girdwood. And, um, <clears throat> they're, was a lot of snow like in Anchorage 26 inches in one day uh and that was like the first real snow of the year uh you know we had had like an inch or two um a few weeks before that but it kind of blew away and was gone or melted or whatever and so that was a lot like 26 inches you know the roads are just like they like the the 26 inches you know compacts down to one or two inches of really hard icy like and, it, and it's kind of like a washboard, you know, if someone playing their washboard on the stage, you know, that guy in the, in the van, you know, but that washboard's on the road and it's just as you're driving and it, you know, it's hard on the old, on the old Subi. Um, and nice. the old Subi, but the Subi rallies, dude. And I don't like my Subaru, but you know, if there's one thing that's good for it is rallying through the snow. It's pretty fun. The troop. And then. So yeah, it's a trooper. And then we, you know, got 26 inches of snow. And then, you know, up higher where Miles, our cousin's parents live on the hillside, they got three, four feet, you know, and and Thompson Pass, where, where is one of like a world-class place for skiing and uh backcountry skiing and stuff. They got six feet, you know, and this is all in one 24-hour span. And then and then we like we are all kind of, you know, just trying to get our heads above water and get like everybody just because your first snow you're just rusty you know like the whole with the whole process of just deep like snow removing and um and then we finally were like all right let's take a deep breath it's been a couple days we got all the snow out of the way and then like two uh night before last it snowed another like 10 inches and it was just like all right so it just kind of went from like oh yeah the first snow of the season let's get some eggnog <clears throat> to like all right like I think we're good on some snow for a little bit, maybe. Dude, you were cracking me up. So <clears throat> I called Sean yesterday, and I could tell that Sean is not his normal, like happy-go-lucky kind of. Hey, Brendan, nice to hear you, man. It's my brother all the way from Atlanta calling me right now. No, instead I'm greedy. He's like, man, I'm fucking trying to get out of the <laughs> trying to get out of the driveway. So he's messing with snow to go into work to blow more snow. 
you're like uh i think this uh snow thing i'm good on it like well it just started so uh good thing you're living in alaska pal i know yeah well it's actually you know i'm 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 spirits are high you know snow is here you know this is great for mushing great and that's what this podcast is about uh and you know people are out uh putting their atvs into the garage uh winter you know winterizing them and and covering them up until uh may so uh that's what you're seeing and people are getting their snow machines out getting those ready getting those uh ready to rock and then of course the dog sleds uh you see a lot of videos on everybody's social media about uh them you know sled seasons here um this snow did reach farther north than anchorage uh there's a bunch of snow um in willow and uh big lake and connect and um that whole zone and then even and then up in fairbanks they got a lot of snow uh much earlier than we did and so they are they're also a deke he said he was on sleds uh and staying on sleds it looks like so pretty exciting stuff to to be out there mushing having the dogs truly be pulling you around you know they are still what the dog's job is the same whether or not there's a sled back there you know so if you have an atv or a snow machine behind your team that's the dog's reality is pretty similar um but uh, as far as the musher goes it's what a difference to be being pulled around that's a special uh, feeling you know it's just like that first snow of the year that first sled ride of the year is feels good for any musher no matter how long you've been doing it um so yeah and the dogs appreciate a little quieter uh mechanism back there not the hum of the engine but just the sound of the runners gliding over the snow it gets a little messy when you get two or three feet of snow it's not like a easy mush you know you're working hard back there there's no getting clogged and all those different things of the sled it's hard to break it's hard to set a snow hook because there's no hard packed snow you know so the conditions can be tricky um sometimes you might have to take smaller teams until that snow settles down and you have that hard packed snow that you can anchor your uh, snow hook in so that you can actually stop your team Got you, got you. So it's safe to say that um, all of the Alaska-based uh, teams are all, all, all in sleds, or is there still some parts of the state that maybe they're still doing the ATVs? Um, I would say there's, there's probably some places that they're still doing ATVs. I don't know, if maybe like Sterling over where like Mitch TV's kennel is. I'm not sure how they did. You know, they're probably a little bit warmer there, so it could be like variable conditions. Um, but yeah. I I I don't think in like interior like Denali area I think they just have enough snow but it's kind of on the line like they probably could still use ATVs you know so not everybody it's so much land to get snowed on so you know it'll all it'll come but um you know if you don't have it in your backyard there's it's probably a short drive away to where you can get these awesome winter conditions and I guess the next question I had, and again, I'm not the Alaskan uh, living person right now, but the location of the ACE race is is in what part of Alaska? That's uh, the Denali area, interior. Um, okay. Yeah, that ACE race is, you know, they got a month to go. I think there's, they could do sleds out there already, uh, you know, on the Denali Highway. It's, it's easy mushing as far as the technical aspect of it. It might they might not be able to stop the team like in every spot, you know, like you have to pick and choose where to stop. So like a good place to stop your team and those kind of conditions might be on an uphill 
um, you know, so that it's a little, little bit harder for them to get going. Uh, you, you know, you, maybe you have a rope that is dragging behind your sled, a 20 yard rope, and you can just kind of, if you can just stop the team, they cooperate with a stop sometimes for like 10 to 15 seconds. So if you're like, ah, right, let's, we've run for a couple hours, let's stop and they'll just kind of roll around in the snow and stuff. And while they're doing that, you just like sprint over to a, um, a tree and tie it, tie it around the tree. There's ways to do it. You have support out there too. Like it's a race. There'll be snow machines. There'll be like people out there. There'll be volunteers and stuff. So like, you know, even if there's no snow between now and December 9th, I think I mean, conditions are going to be great out there. They almost always are. Nice. Okay. Yep. That's exactly what I was getting to. So you read my mind there. And then the other question I had, I had, we have, I have a couple things I want to bring up just like, I don't know, news or highlights or whatever. But, um, so my question was, so the musters have been going out and they've been running their probably like smaller trails in terms of small, I mean, like distance wise. Right. And then like this crazy snow comes along and in terms of the trail, like they have to go back out and like, they have to kind of like put the trail back in. Right. Right. Yeah. So like, talk about that. Is that just like, that to me sounds like it would be a pain in the ass, honestly. And it sounds like it would be a tedious task. Um, but I was just kind of like thinking about that. And I was curious about like, have you had to put a trail back in? And, and if you could just speak about that experience briefly. Yeah, briefly. Uh, uh, so. I, I, I had to throw that in there, man. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to get you lost on a half an hour diatribe yeah. about I mean, this. First things first, like getting the snowpack down is huge. Uh, you know, when it all just falls all in one day, you know the snow is just. It's really tough, hard work for the dogs. It's still really good training because they could see that in a in a race, having the soft conditions and like just because you before it snowed you've been doing 40 mile runs or 20 mile runs well if it snows two feet you don't go on a 20 mile run because a 20 mile run at two three feet of fresh snow is going to be three times harder than the 20 mile run you went on yesterday without the snow so getting that snow packed down you can go out and pack it down with your dogs too but it's going to be quicker uh to, to do it with the snow machine and maybe even you have a groomer behind your snow machine in certain conditions and then you kind of wait overnight uh after you drive over it and like with 24 hours maybe maybe two days that stuff settles down nicely and it becomes like the a sidewalk of snow you know it's really nice to walk on uh and the longer time that you wait and the more traffic that goes over the snow the harder it gets the easier it is to travel now when the snow falls like a lot of these trails uh you know they're going through willows and alders and trees and uh the all summer long all those willows and alders and trees grew you know so they overgrow onto the trail um a lot of trees die you know we uh they and then snow falls on top of them um and the branches just begin to bend over the and hang over the tra the trail and you can't really do like you can do the trail work before the snow but you know that once it snows all that stuff's just kind of going to bend down and be hanging over the trail. So it's good to kind of wait for like a big, heavy snow and get out there with a chainsaw or an ax um, and a, and a, you know, six pack of beer and a can do attitude and just go and start breaking, uh, breaking some branches and, and cutting down some trees and getting that trail uh, 
setting it up for the whole winter because once you do it that one time like you're probably mostly probably good for the rest of the winter to not have to do that again yeah i'm glad that you said that because that was my next question like how often do you have to put a trail back in is it mostly like what at the beginning of the season you have to put the trail in once the trail's in is it just kind of like you have these crazy storms you might have to go back out and kind of repack it down and and, and that's that's most of the grooming to it or is it i don't know it just it sounds yeah. tedious i guess no yeah that is that is it and it depends like that's where like having a community where there's like a lot of people that are out on the trails is pretty advantageous uh you know obviously like there's such a thing as too many people out of the trails but you know, the the more traffic you have out there, the less times you have to deal with that. And someone like um, like Emily Robinson and Eddie Burke that live in Ninana and they or I guess Eddie's not not there anymore. But, you know, there's not as many like mushers that live there. Um, and so they do have to put in more trail work. Maybe like Brent Sass would be another good example. That That's and, a, literally I was just about to ask that. Like it, he he is part of the, his training. He's training an area that no one else is training in. Right. Yeah. There, there's probably like, you know, he goes to like villages and stuff. So like there are people out there, but it's few and far between. And he, I know that he puts in a lot of work uh, just keeping the trails open. And so, yeah, it can be a lot of work just keeping them. And like, if you keep that, if you put in the work, the trails better. So if you don't put in that work, like maintaining the trail, yeah, it's yeah, to yeah. trail still goes, but it's it's going to be bumpier kind of like uh and that's fine like that's you know like at Jeff's we didn't really groom the trail too too much and it was just kind of bumpy and there were some spots that were and some part spots that were weren't and then when I went to somebody's kennel and what and they had trails that they like were consistently you know grooming and by grooming I don't mean like, like it could literally mean like you have a snow machine and you're dragging behind like a, a section of 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 fence like a chain link fenced and that's just dragging behind it It doesn't have to be literally like a like a factory groomer it rarely is you know just anything to just kind of push the snow down so let me just go back to like the brent sass situation right so he still has to spend all like he he's not in a situation where he can just all right i'm going out today and i'm going in on in an area where there isn't a trail like that's not that that's that doesn't work. You have to go out ahead of time and and put put the fence down or whatever or pack trail a, or whatever. Or yeah, like, it's a judgment judgment call. I mean, it depends on how much snow. Um, you know, you can do this with the dogs. If it's too if it's too much snow, it's just a little bit you know tougher for, on their feet and just harder work for them. Um, but you know. It, you don't get 26 inches of snow at once like that often, you know, it's not so like something like that. You're probably going to have to go out and break open the trail. Um, but if it snows eight inches, like that's not a big deal. If it snows even over a foot, it's like, if it's in the light fluffy snow, they just plow right through that. Like no problem. So, and that's the thing about Brent, his snow is like interior, like cold snow. So it's most of the time should be really light and, uh, easy to kind of get through but also at the same time like the colder the temperatures the stickier like the the more coarse the snow is but it's still you can kind of blow right through it and uh yeah it's just a judgment call 
Um, gotcha. You know, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I figured I'd ask. I didn't, you know, naturally we probably took it two steps too far, but, uh, yep, yep, we do do that. Know. But, uh, so let's just hit a couple of quick things before we, uh, get ready for our interview. Um, our interview with Greg Heister, you guys are going to really enjoy this one. We'll kind of talk a little bit more about that in a sec, but just wanted to quickly cover a few things. Um, so I saw that the Cusco announced that they have a $25,000 increase, um, which I think is awesome. Um, you know, $25,000 is an increase to the entirety of the purse, right? So Correct. like the winning prize might be 25 or 30 grand for the, that musher. 28, right? 28.5 is the winner. Okay, nice. I'd love to see that list of, what's the last place? Do you, does it say that or is it, no? I think what I read was 28.5 was for the winner and then the, the next spots all get money down to the 25th spot. So I guess there's gonna be and five, that's probably like five mushers that don't get money. Right. And that's like, and if you, and if you get last place, like my understanding is that that's usually somewhere in the two to $4,000 range, $4,000 for 25th place in a 300 mile race is pretty like, there's just, this is why it's the biggest purse in mushing per mile, right? You got 300 miles and you got uh, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of money going out to those guys to make it worth their while to go and travel all the way to Southwest Alaska and fly your 12 dogs out there it's a total pain in the ass and it's expensive and you know why would you go and do that if you're gonna if you unless you only make the top five and those guys make a few thousand bucks but everybody else doesn't like this is an incredibly competitive race so it's hard to get in the top 20 you know but they pay out all of those guys so that's pretty that's pretty awesome and that's a good insight that's why you see a full field right full field and it was full like i think I think it was relatively quick that from the moment sign up was uh, happened to it being full. So part of uh, the reason there's other reasons too, you know, it's yeah, no, just, awesome it's just, country, great environment, good people. Yeah. Lots well, of reasons. And to kind of hit on like what we've talked about, like, okay, we're seeing these races are filling up quickly. There are a lot of them are bigger than they've been in the past. Then we have a trend where this Cusco is getting more money. So like, that's, that's all good things. Um, mm-hmm. I think, obviously I think we want to see more, more mushers in the Iditarod. So like, you know, what are we doing ultimately to get there? But um, those are two bits of of news that I think are are good to see. You know, uh, we started off, I forget what, what race was it? The Knick that we were talking about that was getting canceled this year. Uh, the Willow, but the Willow. I, I did see that. Uh, the Willow 100 is on, um, and uh, my buddy uh, Matt, who ran a deer ride a couple years ago, his daughter's like 17, I think. She's running the 100, so there's they already have over 10 mushers in that, and I believe that there's going to be some uh, additional events. I'm not sure if that means that the 300 will be on or not, but there will be more than just the Willow 100 there, so good to see that they're making something happen. I mean, look, the trails are going to be in, you know, like, you, you know, you, I mean, that's what, that's what the ACE race does. They're like, they don't, they're just like, yeah, come and party at our bar and go run your dog 60 miles, you know, right. and you just start the clock when you want to start. They literally are like, yeah, just tell us when you leave and start the clock. You know, like, it's not even like a real, like, you know, 
banner that you're starting under right so like right. you can really go like bare minimum with a race like so to put on the willow 300 you could just be like yo just start here and tell us when you you know you know you could do that and, right. and just not make it a qualifier or something got you well my point just being like good to hear that there are some good positive things trending um in in the world of mushing uh the other thing i was yeah. gonna mention is so I, I saw that Dallas won something. So I had to go back and like figure out what was going on. Cause he also won something at the, at the sign up in the summer. So they're doing a weekly raffle and uh, Dallas won the first week of the raffle essentially. Um, and I guess what they're doing with this, like 25% of however, every, like anyone can buy a raffle ticket. Right. And however much is in the pot for that week, the whoever they pull out wins 25% of the pot. The other 25%, it goes to uh, the jackpot. At the end of all of this, there's a big old jackpot. And then the other 50% is split between the Iditarod and the Museum of Alaska Transportation and Industry. So I thought that was interesting. Nice. I was just like, dude, Dallas, like, I'm pretty sure in the summer he won a free entrance to the race. And then he or no, 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 excuse me. He won booties. That's what it was. He got the booties. Now he's winning this. Like, of course. But um, so I thought that was interesting. But then in reading that, what I found out is they also have um, they call it the tagalong program, which is essentially um you can you can pay $250 to have a tag with one of your mushers one of your favorite mushers and each musher a tag you like as in like the tag sled a tag it says a tag with their dogs fans can pay, fans can pay a flat fee of $250 to have a tag with their dog's name ride in the sled uh, of their chosen musher oh right on Okay, and so that is pretty cool. uh, And each musher can get up to five of those. Um, So they're they're doing they're doing some good fundraising for this is kind of what I'm getting at, too. And then the last thing I was going to mention, which I thought was cool, is um, each musher has a code. So like if you go to if you get anything from the Iditarod website or sign up for their insider, each musher has a um a code attached to their name it's i think if i'm correct it's just their first initial and their last name um and in all caps and that gives them 10 percent um so i just thought that was interesting i thought i'd bring that up that's nice to you you love to see you know i did a lot of helping out the mushers and they obviously help them out in so many ways but that's a a good positive thing something that i totally wish i had mentioned pre-recording uh that was pretty big news and it's both from dallas the number one is that he has this pretty funny video of him out training on the denali highway and he ran out of gas on uh, they were truck training Yes. You know, dude, the Denali Highway always like throws you for a loop, at, you know. Uh, but yeah, they ran out of gas. They're, you know, they're running their dogs in front of it, the truck. And sure, the dogs can pull that around on a flat surface, but there's lots of big uphills and it's a big truck. 
So he like he like got a team of six dogs together, and Dude. he didn't have a dog sled. He just the had most like Dallas a, thing ever. Like I feel like trash can lid, you know, kind of sled like that you would just slide down the hill with, with and the dogs pulling him to town so that he could go and get gas. I was, I was like, that's pretty. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That, that I, I watched that video and I was just like, there's Dallas on on the back of a trash can or whatever on his knees. And he has 15 miles to go and he's going to, he says in the video, he's going to Jesse Holmes house. He's like, I'm going to go see if I can get lucky and get, get some gallons off. (laughs) Just like, that is so crazy, you know? And, and the other thing he mentions, like he has no cell service either. So, right. Right. uh, So he's out of gas, no cell service. Like me in that situation, I am literally like, I'm pissing my pants, man. Like I didn't, I wouldn't know where to begin. And he's just like, Oh yeah, let me just throw this piece of plastic. And you know, I, I it just, it, it goes to the ingenuity of, of true Alaskans, man. Like, yeah. I mean, you, you don't like something that I've learned. I think it's from mushing, you know, not just being in Alaska, you can be in Alaska and not know these things too, you know? And, and just like, all right, like, there's no like you got there's no one else that's going to help you except for you so like you know just start taking even if it means you got to walk the 15 miles you know but yeah he has the dogs you know there's he could probably you know he he can make it happen and so yeah that's 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 fun and you know you learn to have that mentality when you're running dogs because you you know sometimes yeah the runs go just like you planned but a lot of the times they don't and you will like have these dreams of, oh, well, I'll be back at 8 p.m. And then maybe I can make myself some dinner and hang out with my girlfriend or whatever. And then you like next thing, you know, you run into a moose. Uh, the dogs take a wrong turn. You got to turn around and, oh, my God, you know, and then you're back at 4 a.m. But you just still do it with a smile on your face. And that's exactly kind of similar to what Dallas is. This is this is like not a big deal for Dallas. This is like no. a it was, that, that even, was probably like, just oh, like yeah. oh no big deal Let me yeah. just a little dust on my shoulder no big deal i speak and then, um, so then here's another thing on the dallas news i'm sorry we got to talk about him a lot but dude he is signed up for the copper basin 300 you might be thinking okay whatever like a lot of i did ride mushers are signed up for the copper basin 300 like what a big he is a rookie he has never run the copper basin 300 wow dude Sorry to all the other rookies, but you're not winning rookie of the year. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he he's going to run. He might not win the race, but y'all aren't winning rookie of the year. <laughs> maybe he's going to run his like C team and do it. It was super fun. But that's kind of cool. Like, you know, he always said, oh, yeah, you know, you don't want to run the mid distance races because they don't really like do as good of a job training for the Iditarod as it would be if you did it like an Iditarod specific training series throughout the winter which is what he's done for the last 10 or 15 or whatever years and so he kind of avoided a lot of these mid-distance races but dude the copper basin is like through some incredible country like if nothing else then to just see that zone of alaska be a dog team you know it's got and it's at this point it's like all right the dude's won five iditarods like you know time to do a new trick you know, so like it's the Copper Basin. Let's go see that. That's like a, it's different, man. It's not his dogs are not, you know, experienced in competing in that kind of uh, style race. And so it'll be kind of cool to see. And uh, you think he's got to call Dallas a freaking 
rookie. rookie. You know, it's kind of funny. Do you think he's got like the itch right now? Like that seems a little unusual. Like you said, I don't know. I think you just like he's always looking to continue to to. I think anybody should be doing this is just to like um, put yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone. You know, if like wouldn't it be a shame if he just never ran like what is considered to be the toughest three hundred mile race on the planet? And as and it being a somewhat thing that's so close to where he lives, you know, there so it's like go. at some point he had to it's just let's just see what's up with the Copper Basin, you know, and I'm not sure what else is on his list of of of, of races he hasn't done. Um, I'm not sure if he's, if he's done the Cusco. I um, don't think he's ever done the Willow. Uh, he did do the Yukon Quest 1000, but yes, hasn't done the shorter ones. Like Maybe we'll see some of that in the future, but that's really cool to see, you know. Him being like, you know what? I'll give it a go. Let's see. And you know, he's the guy that everybody is going to be paying attention to. And and that's what I think another part of why he maybe he doesn't like doing these races because he has not a lot to win from it. And you know, the headline's gonna read like so and so beats out at Dallas CV. You know, it's like it's like, all right, you know. But ultimately, you know, I did a rides to go for him and maybe, but not for everybody, you know, maybe, maybe he'll be trying to get another trophy. All righty, sir. So let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. Uh, dude, Greg, the voice, <coughs> the voice dude, of the identity. I can't even, I can't, there's no way to even remote. Like as soon as you guys start listening to this interview, like, and I even comment like the first word out of his mouth, I'm like, yep, that's why he does. That's why he calls the Iditarod right there. Like just the, the voice alone. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Then he's I like, mean, your voice is dude. Don't cut yourself short, dude. You got a buttery I, voice, dude. I'm telling I'm you. Not, don't none of that. Then, <laughs> then, then to, to add to it, I just loved it. He's like, uh, oh yeah. Like he's kind of like messing with his hair and like Sean's like, yeah, the hair looks good. He's like, oh yeah. I just rolled out of bed. Like this is my bed head. I'm like this guy, man, he's got the voice. All right. And now I guess maybe I'm, I've got something like it. I don't, I think Sean's blowing smoke in my ass, but he, then he's got the hair and, and I'm looking at my hair and I don't have any. And I'm not okay with that. But anyways, um, so keeping this short, Sean, uh, dude, I I loved our time with Greg. And I feel like there are th- literally hundreds of more questions that I wanted to ask that maybe we'll have him on like after I did or something. But what was your takeaway from from our time with him? Yeah, it did kind of fly by. I, don't, I, I just I do remember him saying he just kind of went into like uh, at one point in the podcast about, you know, that it's so much more than a race. The Iditarod, you know, he spent, he's dedicated like, like almost three decades to covering the sport um, in various capacities and he's, you know, promoting it and helping it. And it's gone through like some tough times and he's always been there to like, kind of try to, you know, fight that fight. And, and so he talks about, you know, how much how it's a lifestyle and how much these people sacrifice and how hardworking they are and how cool it is to be a part of it. And it like it's like I feel like it's like a motivational speech kind of thing. And like we should just put some like music behind it or something where it's like, you know, some David Goggins shit or I don't know. And, put the epic like uh, I did rod music behind his voice, you know, and yep. just I mean, he does that. You know, that's what he does. If you ever get those DVDs at the end of the, each race. 
you know, those things are, 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 that's what it was. It was just like this awesome narration about, it's about the lifestyle. And I was like sitting there like almost crying, like all together, Sean. Yeah. So it was fun talking to him, man. He has a way with yeah. words and, and uh, he's, you know, he's done this before he's talked in front of a microphone once or twice. He's a basketball well, announcer, does has a fishing, fly fishing show and is the, I did a ride, you know, guy. So, yeah. And that was what was funny to me is like, I had these questions, you know, ahead of time written down. And then like, he just kind of starts talking off the cuff. And like, I didn't, no one asked a question really. And he's talking. And then like, he kind of goes and takes a turn with that story and kind of starts talking about a little cool thing. And then he brings it back. It's just, I enjoyed our time with him. Uh, The one thing I will say, I don't want to give too much away so you guys could just enjoy it, but the thing that stood out to me the most was this is not someone who is sitting in a trailer or sitting comfortably right. on the side and then mushers come into the stop and he's like, oh, let's go out here for two minutes and get the shot and then go back into the tent or go into the cabin. The dude does not sleep. He literally talks about it. He's like, I don't think for the first four or five days I sleep. And he talks about like just being in the element. And he's he talks about like one day, one one of the checkpoints, like negative 50 or something. He's out there in a tent. He's not feeling good, but he's just like, oh, I'm just doing going. Same thing the mushers are going through. He's doing so uh, that just kind of stood out to me. I was like, yeah. you know. It would be definitely, easy to just sit inside and have all these amenities. And it doesn't sound like he takes advantage of that. Yeah, he. De- I definitely, my respect levels for Greg, not like they were low beforehand, but I was just like, damn, this guy, like he actually is the real deal out there. Like, you know, roughing it, you know, obviously the mushers are probably roughing it a little bit more, but you know, he's, he's out there with them in the cold, not sleeping, dealing with all the same BS everyone else is. And he's been doing it for 20 freaking five years. You know, that's just like, uh, respect dude. Like, so he, and he's given everything to this sport and he's what is the bridge between Iditarod and like the mainstream media. And he's bridging. Yeah. He does his best to bridge that gap as best he can. So we're super thankful that he's part of mushing. Yep. So uh, we hope that you all enjoy the the rest of this episode and our interview with Greg. Hi, guys. Hey, there Greg. He is. How are you? We're doing pretty you, good. Can you hear me you? good? We it's gotta like, start taking taking notes. You're taking in, notes. Instantly, I hear that voice, and I'm like, man, that's 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 why you're that's why you got your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks it must for. Mean uh, we're getting close to another race. Yeah, December 9th is ace race. That's like in like a month. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's basketball season for you. Yeah, I had a game last night and uh I got three next week. So yeah, it's it's go time. Yeah. It's good. That's awesome. No complaints. Yeah. It's a fun way to make a living and and all that. And it's been such a long time. A lot like my association with you know the grand old race in alaska it's just been i've been doing these things so long it's like uh you know comfortable sweater these days right weird not to have it yeah brendan is also a bulldog fan just of a different bulldog of the (laughs) university of georgia oh okay all right i can live with that (laughs) i mean you know it's it's only natural it's where we're from so 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, they're, they're good in football. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. They could uh, certainly take a, a page out of the uh, Gonzaga basketball book in terms of, you know, trying to be a little bit better than, than their current state is, you know? Yeah. Basketball. You mean Foot, football, yeah. they're good. They're going to, they're going to, they're in the picture for the national championship again this year. So yeah, yeah. they're doing good. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Where are you guys at now? I am in Anchorage. That's where Atlanta. I live. And yeah. uh, Bren's in Atlanta, where he lives. Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. So, wow. All right. Crazy. Nice haircut, dude, by the way. I like it. Good look. Me? Yeah. <laughs> dude, come on, man. That's not That's not a haircut. That's just rolling out of bed, and this is what I got. Uh, I, I, I had to put you. a hat on, dude. Sorry, you yeah, see what I'm like, rocking? Like, it's not good. If you'd rather we have a hat on, but like no, if no, no, I did no, around, it kind of works, I would think. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, the rest of my world, I got to put a tie on and a coat and get cleaned up. And, you know, I, I enjoy the days I get to talk about mushing because I don't have to worry about any of that. That is true. And yeah, uh, yeah especially when you're on the trail, you guys, by day yeah. seven or eight, you're like, yeah. oh, you can see yeah. it. Just when when are you going to get back out there? Well, uh, I, you know, if you, if you need a, you know, a, another person to, to help with the production side of things, I'd get out there this year, but, uh, oh, well, yeah. Sean, let's, let's talk. You're in, you're in Anchorage, right? I am. Yeah. yeah I so here. let's, yeah, let's, let's talk. Let's talk after this. There, there might yeah. be an opportunity for that. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, I'm definitely, I'd probably be out there on the trail in some capacity anyways, just, uh, yeah. whether it's volunteering or something, but um yeah you know i i've i'm always thinking maybe i should uh you know yeah, no absolutely and... no 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 let's let's make that happen i let's uh, honestly let's make that happen i can there's like live stream positions and stuff like that and you would be really good because you could sit and talk about mushers and dog teams oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. you know, let's yeah. yeah let's chat let's chat <laughs> right on and, uh, Brendan, I, I don't know we got a spot for you too or what's the <laughs> what do, what do you normally do Oh, so I, I, I'm in marketing in my normal job. Um, right. But, you know, Sean, he, when he was running the Iditarod, uh, you know, we were like sitting there, he'd be doing these runs and we'd be having these conversations and we've been talking about a podcast for a while. And yeah. this is just kind of like a fun thing for me to keep up with my brother. And, you know, even though he's not in the races right now, he's still very much like in the the scene with the the, the different mushers. And um, it's fun to kind of talk about it. And, yeah. you know, like when he was doing the race, obviously, um, you know, we were following it pretty closely. And so it's nice, even though he's not in the race to still like want to talk to follow it and talk about it. And, uh, you know, like being from Atlanta, Georgia, it's not a traditional thing that someone yeah. here in Atlanta is normally into. So yeah, for sure. um, they should be. I, I audit, like, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if, if people would just go to the race from where I live and see it firsthand, they would definitely get the, the bug. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we're just trying to do our best to kind of spread the word a little bit. We've enjoyed having the mushers on and getting their perspective and, um, you know, we, Sean and I had been talking about getting you on for a little while just because it would be a, 
uh, a different perspective than the mushers, but you're like very much so a part of things in, in terms of how you have your job and everything. And so um, we just kind of wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about your experience uh, doing what you do. Yeah, well, I'm I'm up for that. It's been a long road now, Brennan, like been around it a long time. And yeah. You know, I hate to even like talk about that sometimes because it makes me feel really old, but. No, I have been around and it's it's honestly been one of the 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 crowning uh experiences of my life. I mean, honestly, it's uh I have so much adoration and love for the event and so many of these people that have committed their lives to it over the years that um I've I've often said it's the greatest event in sports and I still live live by that motto today and and i owe, i know it intimately so maybe that affects that that's um philosophy i i don't know but like i put it up against anything for sure that's a, that's a lot coming from you man because yeah. you know you, you're a sports guy you know? yeah so yeah no yeah. it is sean and, and look you know this i mean there there's so many people around this thing that are highly educated, they're extremely articulate, and they're the hardest working people I've ever been around as a as a mass, right? So if they were committed to the business world, many of them would be wealthy. Uh, but they have sacrificed a lot of that to live a lifestyle and and to pursue it. And I can remember when I was a young guy and I showed up on that scene and and I think what drew me most to this event was not the fact, just not just the fact that, you know, the the landscape that it traveled over or these crazy dogs, but it was these people that have committed their lives to this. When society says that you should be out there chasing, you know, wealth and, you know, a 401k and a, and a proper retirement, there's this whole sect of people that have kind of set all of that aside for the love of life and the love of experience and the love of these dogs and this lifestyle that is anchored in days gone by, and they've committed their whole life to it, their family's life to it, and they've set all of that aside to pursue their hopes, wants, and dreams. I've always, I've always been motivated and and have found great strength from all of that being around people like that. Because in in my own little way, you know, I'm out here chasing whatever I'm chasing, but it's never been about money. I, I don't do anything for work that I don't love. Like I, Wait, that's it. that is evident. Yeah, yeah. Like I have to love it, or else I'm not. If it's just about cash, like ah, uh, I'd rather go fishing. Yeah, you know, and spend time doing it. So, so uh, I've learned that from my Diderot. Like it's uh, and and the people that have committed to it. Like this is this is far more than just a dog race to me. Like, uh, it's been it has helped carve out and and really kind of put a trail in for me in my life and my pursuits and stuff. So I, I believe that I owe so much to it. And I owe so much to these people that have committed their lives to it because, and that's why, you know, even, you know, the world thinks that we're, you know, the race is on some precarious perch and that's why it's still so important for me to commit time and energy to it because, you know, I believe in it on, uh, on such a, I probably got off track a little bit there, but um it is time for all of us to kind of band together and keep it going. 
Yeah. yeah, you know my my hair does need a little work, doesn't it? No, I was saying it looked good. No, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I just say you know. Well, um, those that know me, like they know this is pretty normal. But uh, you know, usually on uh, on Twitter Twitter once a year, I'll get somebody that says, "Hey, Heister's piece is looking good tonight <laughs> on television," and uh, and I'll usually get in there and say, "Yeah, it's the best investment I've ever made." And uh, but as you guys can tell, it's not. It's 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 real. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's like hearing you talk about the, the race and the lifestyle, you know, I'm like yeah. border borderline. I mean, that that's what you have the value that you brought to the race. You know, I think everybody can is, is thinking, thank you for everything that you've done over the last 20, whatever years for the race. Cause it's like, you're bridging that gap between such a unique lifestyle that is the Iditarod and the sled dog life. And and yeah. trying to bring it to a regular, you know, citizen of the world who's like can't really yeah. grasp what the heck is going on up here. And, uh, you know, it, it makes it kind of digestible for somebody who's not really in it, you know, and uh, like that. And that's that's been like just the way that you describe it, the words that you're using, you know, you just have a, a way with words and and. Uh, it's been really fun watching the race and seeing you and Bruce analyzing and, and talking to dogs and talking to everybody. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Well, my buddy, Bruce, I'm glad you brought him up. You know, uh, he got involved with the inside. I don't know how many years ago, but uh, this was probably like 1994. I remember going to his place in Denali park and he was a musher then. I've been Just, there. Yeah. Yeah. He's, a, oh, yeah. You've been to his place. You know exactly yeah. where, like the coolest place. And he built it with his hands. Like Bruce is one of the, don't, I hope he doesn't see this, but he's one of the coolest guys I know. And uh, I remember going in there and we were in a period in the race where it was really warm and the trail was really fast and Boozer was, you know, dominating with speed. And I remember going in there and it was a day when the snow was really falling, it was big, heavy flakes. And, and we were talking about the change uh, that was happening on the trail and, and, and with the times and stuff. And I remember Bruce being able to encapsulate it so beautifully where he talked about, you know, it, it all cycles. The day is going to come back when you need a sled dog that can, you know, run over the Alaska range, can can make its way through overflow, can put its head down on a 40 mile an hour wind on the Bering Sea coast. Uh, it The day will come back when we still need dogs like that to go win the Iditarod. And I remember thinking at that moment, this guy, I got to work with him. I got to work with him because he's taught me so much and he was able to put it through words in a way that was flowery but it was like poetic, you know, and it was just spot on. And so, you know, flash forward, you know, I, I forget, you know, when Bruce came onto the team, but it was, it was near the beginning of this. Um, and, and zoom forward all these days, uh, years forward. And it, again, it would be weird not to be out there without Bruce. Right. Even though he's kind of, he's kind of one of the old world guys, right. The guys that were around in the nineties and, um, maybe a little bit before that. And uh, and the mushing world has changed. The musher has changed. Like everything has evolved and it, it had to evolve. But he's still a bridge. He's still a bridge to those old days of Susan Butcher and Rick Swenson and, you know, the days that were different. But yeah, it's uh, 
you know, Bruce is just, he's on a list of so many people that I've met and people that I consider friends over these years on this trail, um, both at the start line, the finish line, but in between, I, I just, uh, man, it's been, Sean, it's been a long time. I mean, it's closing yeah. in on 30 years. I think I've been 30 on. years. 90, 92 was my first one. And uh, 1992, what were, 19- what was, was that like the wild world of sports back wide world? Of well, sports I was thing? working for, uh, for a local station there in Anchorage and we were the official station. So, uh, I was I was hired. I was the sports director, so I went out there the whole way. And this is how stupid I was, you know. I wanted the the whole experience, so I get to go from start to finish. And it was one of the coldest races on history. It was sixty three below zero when uh, Doug Swingley and Joe Runyon pulled into Ruby, and I slept every night of that race in a two man mountaineering tent, no heat. And uh, uh, I remember that day, like I was down on the river in my little tent and just just camped out there and I come walking up and, and literally I was sick. I had fluids coming out of every pore in my body. I had like 103 degree temperature, but I was hell bent on spending every night in that tent. And, uh, and we got through it, but um, it was one of the coldest races in history, but uh, I was hooked, man. Like I was hooked. And and I learned right away, like, and, and those are the days, you know, the, I think in 90, three, four, five, something like that. I did the trail on snow machine to cover it. And I, I remember like when you're in the middle of the Delzell Gorge camped out and a dog team comes around and a musher sees who it is, like there's just a different level of respect and also access that you're going to get if they see you out there with them. Right. Yeah, and I learned absolutely. that right away. Right. So you were never in all these years, you were never going to have to go, you know, kick my bedroll to get me out of bed when a musher's coming in. Like I'm up all night, most nights in that trail, because I don't want to miss a damn thing. And I learned that right away. Like you have to be there. You have to be in the shit with them. Mm -hmm. And if you allow yourself to be in it with them, you know, even though it's different, like we haven't just come the 80 mile stretch from from Uniclete to Caltag, I get, but at least they see you. Uh, it changes things, you know, it changes things. And, um, and so that's really important. And it's always, I don't want to say bothered me over the years, but, um, you know, when I see media people sleeping, like, (laughs) like, or anybody for that matter, I'm like, what are you doing out here? What do you mean you're sleeping? Like, like I show up in the checkpoint and, uh, the first thing that everybody worries about is uh, where they're going to sleep, what they're going to eat. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, that's the last thing people like I'll hire someone. So where do we sleep? And I look at him. I'm like, um, like, like just, you know, wherever, like, what, yeah, whatever, like, if you, like, wherever, like if you find a tree and you got 10 minutes, a good place to lay down and get 10 minutes. <laughs> right. And, and people in my life, I don't think that they really understand what we but we do when we have to cover that race because it does, as you know, you guys know, it doesn't stop moving like all night long. And the yeah. stories are evolving all night long. So it's like, literally, I remember one year, Sean, I, I forget what year it was, but I, I tracked it. I did not sleep the first five days of the race did God. not close my eyes. And so, um, and I remember one year I was, I was up on the wall in the Delzell Gorge and I was with a guy named Terry Burge, an old friend. And, and I hadn't slept uh, it was two or three days and I was hallucinating and 
I had a light up on the wall and the dog team's coming down through it and I'm shining the light on it so he can get the images and he, and I'm moving the light and he's, he starts yelling at me like, quit moving the light. What are you moving the light for? And I'm like, I'm shining the the light on the dog teams that are going by, and there were no dog teams. <laughs> there, were, <laughs> there were no there were no dog teams going by. So, uh, you know, I, I've always felt like, and I remember back in the old days, Rick Mackey used to have the greatest stories about hallucinations. And so, you know, when you cover this race, you got to get in there with them. Yeah, like, you got to understand, like you know, what they're going through, so that you can first report on it accurately, but maybe have a you know, somewhat of a sense of, you know, the sleep deprivation part of the race is huge. And to be able to make such critical decisions seven or eight days into the race when they haven't slept, like if you can't relate to that, it's really hard to yeah. to report on that accurately. So um, it's been great, dude. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the sleep deprivation aspect of things, like, you know, not just decision making, but like emotionally, like yeah. you just like you start to create these problems that aren't there. You know, you start to think like, what have I done? Like whatever it is, you know, it's like, oh, no, like what have I done? You know, and that there's like this battle of yeah. just like staying positive, you know, and yeah. when it seems like there's no and it's it, it would be easy to do if you had an eight hour night of sleep. You're like, oh, yeah, we're doing totally fine. You know, you get like a 20 yeah. minute nap in and you wake up and you're like, oh, dogs look great. What am I talking yeah. about? Like that emotional aspect of things. And yeah, you know, to I, every time I was in a race, I'd be thinking like, yeah, you know, all these people that are, uh, you know, handling in the race or volunteering, like they don't know what I'm going through. Like I'm going through the real thing. And then you go and you handle for a race and you're like, yeah, but we're not that far behind. Like it's still pretty cold and we're still not sleeping. And yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. they went through you know, yeah. the trail or whatever, yeah. but you know, it's credit to like the grind of just all that support that goes around the race. And you know, that, you know, this as better than almost anybody that to put on the Iditarod is like a miracle yeah. every time it happens, you know, there's just yeah. so much that's going into it logistically and so many people helping. Um, So yeah, Brennan, talk to me. Well, I was just kind of, uh, I was kind of curious about like how, how you, I guess you were working doing the sports in Alaska and that's how you first got involved. And then like, it just kind of like, it was an instant thing for you. You were just like, totally like, I got to figure out a way to stay a part of this as long as I can. Cause like you're, to my knowledge, you're, you're, you've moved away from Alaska, but you're still coming and doing this. So yeah. Uh, just talk a little bit more about that beginning. I'm I'm kind of curious about that. Well, Brendan, first of all, I grew up in the outdoors, right? So my family, you know, I grew up in Western New York. And so I grew up hunting and fishing and trapping and, and spending a lot of time outdoors. So wow. when I, when I moved to Alaska, you know, I, I, my first job on television was in Cleveland and I worked, I suffered through that for two years and, and professionally it was great. I was covering all these professional sports and, it was awesome. But then a job opportunity came up in Anchorage and um, and it paid me just barely enough to live. And so at 20, how old was I? 23, 24 years old. Oh my gosh. I moved to Anchorage. Yeah. And chased that. And uh, we were the official Iditarod station at the time. And so um, I got to go out there and it was at that time, it was my greatest adventure in life. I mean, 
you get to go across the Arctic. And we covered it different back then. Um, you know, so Dan, do you know Danny Siebert, Sean? Uh, and Aaron, no, Danny Siebert, he's on the board. You've probably seen him. Okay. But Danny was my pilot back then. And, and he was with Pen Air. And we had a 185 on skis. And he was the evil Knievel of pilots. Like, <laughs> really good. Like, just an amazing bush pilot. But, like, if Danny wouldn't fly, nobody would fly. Like, he was always the kind of the barometer out there. So we landed that airplane everywhere. Like, we did all the wilderness landings. We landed out at Old Woman. I remember one time oh, we nice. landed out there, sunk the wings down, right, into the snow. It took us hours to dig it wow. out. And he'd get it back up on step, and we'd just about get off, and the plane would sink again, and we'd have to dig it. Like, we just – we took off tops of trees. Wow. Like, like it was it was fantastic. So – I got done with that first race and I got to know him and, and Boozer had wanted his first Iditarod. And I was just enamored with these people uh, and the places that I had just seen and, uh, and got to experience. I was hooked. I mean, absolutely hooked. And, you know, and I think with like everybody, when they first see it, like, Oh, I got to do this. I got to run the Iditarod. And um, and that lived in me for, I don't know, five years or so. But it also came apparent to me at that time that what I loved about Iditarod, when I separated, you know, the exhilaration of the experience, it was these people. And it was the people living the lifestyle. And I was never going to be in the lifestyle. I was going to be one of these people who rented a dog team and went out and did the race. I was not going to be a guy who spent three or five years scooping poop and earning the opportunity to be out on that trail. So that was never going to be me. So I, I just kind of set those desires aside and figure out a, figured, figured out a way to stay involved with the race using uh, my skill sets and, and to stay connected to it. And in my own little way, uh, run my own Iditarods in a way. Uh, just not not on dog teams right so yeah um, that's that's really what it's been like it's uh, the month of March is you know the NCAA tournament's going on there's Dude, that would have been insane. ways for me to make a lot of you know at least more money and uh, and to keep my life busy but um, this silly dog race has just kept <laughs> me hooked I mean it's wow it got its claws in me w way back when and then you know you get to a point because you know, I was a young, uh, not talented, you know, raw guy when I started covering this race. I cut a lot of teeth out there as far as a storyteller goes. And so you, then you get to a point where like you feel like you owe it, right? And then it, it hits on hard times and you're like, well, I can help this thing. I, I believe that I can help keep it afloat. So it's just been this thing that, you know, every three or five years, there's a new mission with it and it keeps you involved so uh, i don't know if that answers your question it's just uh, i think it's like um everybody else that stands too close you know doug swingley used to talk about the vortex he was the first one really to bring those those words into play and you stand too close to the vortex you get sucked in and then you can't get out of it right and so it's been kind of like that for me there's been plenty of years i get to know him and i'm like okay that's it like i'm done like this is it, <laughs> and then this is Sean can relate. And then oh, uh, yeah. you know the the next January comes, and you're like, ah, okay, I got one more in me, and uh, now, and I've just kind of surrendered with all that because I know I'm not leaving. So uh, I don't even, you know, 
piss and moan about it anymore. It just is what it is. You can't tell you how many times I've heard those those words. Of, yes. uh, this is my last race. I think I'm I'm not gonna I'm gonna get out of dogs. And I, it's somebody I see you know a couple times a I year, know. and then sure enough, yeah. next year their name pops up, and I'm like, what what happened to that talk we yeah, had? You know, I know. But I, I can't. Yeah. What do like? What are the people at like? You know, your college uh, basketball announcing uh, friends and coworkers like. I mean, I can't imagine you just like, yeah, I'm going to go up to Alaska. I mean, there's people that like, I would say like probably half of the United States population doesn't know like what an Iditarod is, you know? And so you're just telling these, yeah, I'm going to like leave the pinnacle of college basketball. Yeah. March Madness, like <laughs> arguably one of the greatest competitive events in all of sports. The most exciting thing you can ever witness where one game ends a career in basketball or makes it and you going up to freeze your ass off at 63 below zero and sleeping in a tent. You know, I just can't imagine what, <laughs> what's going through your, your coworkers, you know, brains when yeah. you well, explain that. I think that they all, I think they all feel it's, you know, it's kind of cool. And you got to remember, like, I've just come through all these months of calling games that's true. So I've, yeah. I've kind of done it, right? Okay. So by the time I get to March, I've probably called 50 games. Damn. So, so I'm like, you know, let's change it up. I don't think I would have ever, like my, my parents, God bless them. Like they went to work in a company a lot like, you know, people of the older generations, they worked there for 30 or 40 years and did the same job. Like th that's just not what I'm ever going to be right. about. Like I, I have great versatility. I mean, I own a, you know, I own fishing lodges. I have a show, a fly fishing show that airs on discovery channel every Sunday. I do this work with the Iditarod. I call every sport uh, on television. I do a lot of voice work. So I have great versatility uh, throughout the year with what I do uh, to make money. So um, I, I don't want it to ever be different. And um it just keeps everything fresh, Sean. I, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if I was just if I was just doing the Iditarod every year. If that's all I did, I'm not sure I'd still be doing it. You know, because you do, as you know. I mean, you 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 know, like somebody like you know the Boozers and the Kings and these people who have committed their life to it for decades. There is real trudgery in being an Iditarod musher. Like there is. It's repetitive. It's a grind. The work never ends. It's like being a dairy farmer. I tell people that all the time. It's like being a dairy farmer. So I don't think I could have ever done one thing. So I'm I'm blessed in the fact that I can do all, all these different things and it keeps everything fresh. And it's like every three or four months, something new. So yeah. um, I think, but, uh, you know, back to the original question, I, I think everybody that I've talked, they think it's kind of cool. You know, oftentimes I have to explain. They're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Because, you know, back in the day, there was only three stations. And so everybody in the country knew that the Iditarod existed, you right. know, with on Wide World of Sports. And so right. um, the, everybody knew because that was the only thing you watched on a Saturday afternoon in the in the middle of the winter. Um, today, we, we kind of still have to re-educate people. Oh, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I'm like, yeah, it's still happening. Like yeah, the wide world of sports. That's what our dad, you know, he always brings up. Yeah, yeah, I remember watching that because our dad and mom worked for CNN in the 80s and 90s back. Oh, when, like, of course, in it Atlanta. Was, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so they were, they were, you know, they saw a part of that off. and, yeah. and, and part of, you know, 24 hour news being created, yeah. which was so huge back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
no, it, it's, it's, it's a wild, it's, it's, it's crazy how, how uh, you do have to remind people a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, and you know, all of the, the nonsense, I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of the, the world that we live in today, right? All this misinformation. And, and if one person says it, it's the truth. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I just think with all the animal rights attacks and things on it over the years and, one thing happened. I mean, every year I get home and they're like, yeah, did you hear about this? Did you hear about, yeah, I heard about that, but that's not what happened. Right. right. And so I, I just think the Iditarod is somewhat of a victim of that too, where, you know, God bless it. I, I've done my best to try to get the, you know, the, the facts about it all out there, but, you know, there's a whole level of attention beyond Iditarod.com and the insider and the fans of the race, right? And, you know, these people who still don't think it's a good thing. And uh, it's, it's really amazing to me, like every dog in this, in this country has benefited from what has been learned about nutrition and better vet care. It's been learned on that trail. Uh, mm -hmm. When you look at how these animals have been studied, I mean, I, I think other than probably, maybe the horse and the mouse, um, the Iditarod dog has probably been studied more by scientists than any other animal walking the planet. And when you understand that they're really genetically predisposed to doing what they do, they're happiest to doing what they're doing. Uh, you can't get through a checkpoint without a vet checking you over. The, these, these dogs live the life of prima donnas and divas. You know, they're going to see a, a doctor more in a calendar year that you and I will see. Uh, I mean, when you you kind of lump all of this information together and you understand, yes, they run a long ways and it's amazing and it's it's definitely hard on them. And there have been some dogs that have been lost over the years, but rarely is it because of a lack of care or a dog doing something that, you know, it shouldn't have been doing. It's rare. It happens. Um, uh, but it's, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a lot like, uh, you know, when you're younger, you go through that philosophical question of, you know, is life about length or is life about quality? And when I see those dogs running across the landscapes of Alaska, I see a dog at its fullest potential and living the greatest days of its life and nobody or nothing is guaranteed tomorrow. So, why would we ever keep that animal from doing something? I mean, come watch. 800 that's, miles that's, into that's the race, the biggest... you, get, you get whistled up and, you know, <laughs> and they may not look great leaving the checkpoint, but you go a mile around the corner and they're like pistons in an engine. Just It's hard to, it's hard to argue that they don't love what they're doing. Yeah. And I, you know, I always say to any critics, you come up to Alaska, yeah, yeah. go visit a kennel, go see Martin Boozer's, set up you know and, and, and you know Sean, you so, make a decision for yourself instead of just listening to what other people have to say and i think there's this feeling out there you know that mushers don't care they have 80 dogs in the yard and they lose one big deal but um it's just not true and and no. i learned that early so it was 19 i want to say 1996 and uh i was on a snow machine that year and uh, we were going down the Yentna River, and I actually put my snow machine in a hole in that river. And we spent a few hours digging it out, building a fire, getting warm, all that stuff. It was cold, and I went down, and Rick Swenson went through, I think it was the same hole. And his dog team went in, and they came out the other side. And when it came out, 
uh, a, a female named Ariel had passed. Um, and it created a great controversy uh, because there was a lot of people at the time, you know, it really the animal rights thing was starting to grab hold. And there was a lot of discussion. If you lose a dog, you should you should be immediately out of that out of the race. And politics aside, I caught up to Rick on Happy River, right where the steps come out and he's down there camped. And uh, I did an mm -hmm. interview with him. and to see Rick Swenson cry. Like this is one of the toughest sons of ever right in the history of this race. And he's sitting on happy river crying, not because of the politics or the rules, but because he had just lost Ariel. One of how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dogs that he had owned throughout his life. It all hit me squarely in the head. Like, um, you don't get to know unless there's real fiber. You don't get there successfully. You don't win the race. You don't, you don't really understand what the Iditarod is as a musher unless that fiber is there between that musher and those dogs. And to see uh, one of the most grizzled, tough, survivalist sort of characters in the history of this race physically crying on the trail because he had lost one dog. It was uh, eye-opening for me and something I'd, I've never forgotten. Never. So, um, you know, and I, I have empathy, you know what I mean, for, for, you know, when accidents happen on that trail. And I also have perspective on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a long, yeah. long time to see plenty of things go down. Um, Brandon, you look like you were about to say something. Um, well, earlier you were kind of talking about like, you realized that mushing wasn't for you, but you wanted to still be a part of it. And I was just kind of curious if you ever like went out, did you ever kind of like give it a try? Did you have oh, yeah, like, no, a, no. like an yeah, F no, it no, moment? Got, You're like, nah, yeah. this is not going to work out. Yeah. So I did, uh, and, and at the time, you know, I'm climbing mountains, like I, I'm in world-class condition. I'm doing my own tough things and I'm, I'm doing this series called, um, I think it was called Wild Alaska. And I go up to Bettles uh, mm. to hook up with this musher up there. And I forget his, I think his name is Tom. And uh, I think Tom is like Dorothy now or something. I, I don't know. But anyways, that's a whole other story. But I go, <laughs> so I go out with Tom and we're going uh, and he does these sled dog tours and it's like 40 below zero and he gives me a dog team and I got to drive the thing. And I, I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't a very big string of dogs. It was six or eight dogs and we're going down the trail and I'm running like, he didn't teach me how to steer the thing. And so like everything's a straight line and you hit the corners and like literally my dogs, like it, I cut off the corner. So I'm taking out saplings like this big and I, <laughs> we finally get stopped and my, my hands are all busted up and my shoulders are wrecked. And, um, and it was, it was the most physical thing that I had ever, and we didn't go very far. I want to say we went like 20 miles or something. I don't know to these wall tents and it's like 50 below zero. Then you climb in there and you spend the night and then you got to drive the damn thing home. So, yeah. So, uh, uh, an easy answer to your question, Brennan, is that yes, I did. And I knew, uh, you know, again, it's one of those things that gives you perspective. Like you just don't jump on these, on these sleds and, and you get pulled like, no, right. like the, like the musher is an athlete. Like, they're hopping around they're picking that thing up they're turning it 
like and it's it's a constant and until you hit the Yukon, but um, <laughs> constantly driving that thing. So, yeah, I, I had great perspective early in life that like, you know, uh, this probably and then, you know, it, that's the exhilarating part. Like, that's the part of this whole thing I think you could get through is like you're on the trail and you're looking around and these dogs are working hard like you love it. But it's the whole caring for them 365 days a year and and how monolithic it makes your life. And I, I don't think I could have ever done that for very long. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, my first my first run was similar where I got back, you know, I'm sitting there gripping the sled as tightly as I possibly yeah. can. It was yeah. like maybe an maybe an hour, you know, like yeah. it was like maybe like a 10 or six mile yes. run or something. And I got back and like, you know, I, I was like sore from toe to tips of my toes all the way to the top of my head. And I was just like, and it was just Jeff King. And I was just like, yeah. dude, you tell me you do this for like a thousand miles, like 27 <laughs> times. And also all the training, like what the hell, like how, how jacked are you right now? And he's like, you'll figure, you'll figure out how to relax back there eventually, you know, I know. and you do, and you do figure no. out how to like, kind of calmly hang out back yeah. there and Just only go with it, right? yourself when you can't, when you really need to. And yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's a, it's a really physical thing to drive those sleds and, and, you know, mad respect for people that can do it and think about it, Sean. And like, you know, the sit down sled is a really a new phenomenon. <laughs> That was when you like the 2006, I believe. Yeah. And I, I remember seeing a picture of Susan Butcher who'd retired. I think she passed away that year actually later, but Jeff showed up with the seat and he, this is how he tells it is he's like, uh, and this could, you can let, I'll be curious to see what your version is, but he showed up with the seat and everybody was like, Jeff, like you got to seat on your sled dude you're getting pretty old huh you need to sit down now <laughs> i know and then he went and wins the race and then the next year everybody shows up with a seat on their sled it changed yeah. it and and i remember i think in in uh you know the mid 90s maybe like 94 or something like that boozer actually had a bicycle seat that popped up on his sled that would, oh yeah like it's a 10 speed bicycle seat that would pop up and he could sit on it there must have been a bar that kind of sat and so he could sit on it but um, I remember when those seats showed up and then, you know, like Sebastian, Shanula, like he never got off of it. <laughs> like he never got off that. I kept like we would try to put that documentary together at the end of the year. And I'm like, we need like Sebastian sitting down all the time. We need some shots of him standing up and we couldn't find like couldn't find anything. So like it really did evolve the race. And. Uh, when you think about those those teams in the seventies and the eighties and in the nineties, I mean they stood up the whole way. That's like crazy. they stood up the whole way. And so when you you know when you hear somebody of that era look at those sit down sleds and think that the race is a lot easier, it probably is uh, because of that fact. But um, but with that said, like talk to Joe Runyon. I think he's got like nerve damage in the bottom of his feet, you know, from yeah, standing up on that sled for so many years. So, and they also I had like an, like an extra three days on the trail, which doesn't, I don't know if that makes it easier or harder, but like the yeah. winning time in 1990 is like 12, 13 days, you know, yeah, and that's, that's probably true. has been contributed to quicker times, better care for your dogs. Cause you're better rested and of course the weight distribution having half the load in front of you and half the load yeah. behind you and not yeah. having it all in front of you or all, you know, you, you, the, where the heaviest thing is the person, 
right? Yeah. The load isn't that big. Um, Brandon, go ahead. No, um, <clears throat> I was just kind of looking at some questions that I had written beforehand. And uh, I guess one thing that I was curious is like, you've seen quite a few different eras of, of mushing, right? You know, like the, you know, the, the nineties boozer era, right. The Mackie, you know, like then there was the CVs that were on the roll. We've kind of been in this new, the last, it's kind of crazy to think about the last like seven or eight years has not been a, a repeat winner. Um, so just like, I'm curious to like, hear your thoughts on how you've seen the sport evolve, you know, and just like, curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's evolved. And if it's not evolving, it's dying. So it had right. to evolve, right? Yeah. But, you know, as soon as Boozer and King and Swingley showed up, uh, you know, you knew that we were no longer going to see 10 day races that it was going to be nine. And it was, I mean, they're professionals, they're legitimate professionals and it's all up. It's a race. So it's about getting there as fast as you can. And you cannot erode that idea at all. Like you're just, you can try to implement, you know, different rules and things, but still at the end of the day, they're going to try to get there as fast as they can. So I think evolution was, was going to happen. And, you know, gone are the days when these people are coming in off trap lines, working, you know, using trap line dogs. Um, and now it's a it's a real sport. When you look at somebody like Dallas CV, I think Dallas is like Peyton Manning. I think Dallas is like LeBron James. I think he's that in our sport. And uh, I, I tell mushers all that are competing with him all the time. You know, this thing has gotten to the point now where so many minutes have been shaved off of it that I don't think it's really, I don't think the advantage is in the dogs anymore. Because I think all the dogs are pretty close. Yeah. Right? Uh, genetically and the way they're trained. I think the information has flown so freely that it's, so now you got to find out different ways. And when, when and, and Sean, if you come out there with us this year, you're going to see that because Dallas is back in the race. You know, Doug Swingley used to say that this, the Iditarod isn't a, a, a dog race, it's a time management race. And I think Dallas understood that and has taken that to a whole new level. And yeah. so you'll see f Dallas five miles before he gets to a checkpoint. He'll literally be on the back of the sled checking his mind, his list of the things that he has to do the moment that he pulls into the checkpoint. And so that's, I believe, is where Dallas Evy wins these races, is that he gets into the checkpoint and he does his work 10, 12, 14 minutes faster than the competition, which means that his dogs are sleeping 10 to 12 or 14 minutes more every time he stops times 20 times 30, whatever it is. And when you look, when you skew that out over a nine day race, there's your advantage. Absolutely. He is, he is absolutely all about the details uh, the human details in all of this. And, and I'm as amazed at Dallas's ability to do that sleep deprived as anybody in the history of the race, right? So there's these God-giving things too that he has. It's not all that Dallas is a robot and a machine and and has <laughs> figured all of this out, but he he literally has the the intellect, the wherewithal, the toughness, the the desire to be miserable to a point that allows him to to get there first. Um I, I think Dallas is amazing and and um 
uh, when it, you know, when it comes to this race, I, I think that he's the guy to beat every time he saddles up and has, he's the there. only top, like the only Iditarod champion that is always in the top, like four. Like, I don't think he's ever gotten since his rookie year when he was running a puppy team, has he ever gotten not top five, yeah. you know, like, like Jeff, you know, his bad years were like ninth, you know, know, but still like that, that difference is huge. And, you know, you'll see, you know, Pete Kaiser might finish 11th and, you know, you also might finish 15th one year and if the off year for Dallas is third. It's like, yeah. what the hell, know. you know, know and, uh, right and all those top 15 teams have the same, like, not argue, this is arguable, but like they have the same dog talent and conditioning and training. I think Dallas's training regiment, I've experienced it firsthand. I've helped him train his 2021 winning team. You know, he uh, has a really uh, a lot of purpose to his training and it's it parallels the Iditarod as much. He's a guy who believes that running a 300 mile uh, race isn't really going to help you be a, yeah. a competitive Iditarod guy because the schedule of a, the Copper Basin is not what the first 300 miles of the Iditarod look like. Right. And uh, so, you know, yeah, it's he is he is the difference. And um, but, yeah, you know, you see Brent Sass went toe to toe with him and won and you know, so have a few others as like his dad and um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's the crazy thing about this, right? The best team doesn't always win. No, and, almost never. And, and the, you know, like you bring up Brent, like he he's working just as hard as Dallas. And I remember Bill Cotter uh, told me, you know, that Susan Butcher was winning the Iditarod back in her day because she was just flat out working harder than everybody else. And when you look throughout their history, this race, the teams that dominated or got to these three and four time championships, I would bet if you could clock in and out, they probably were working harder than everybody else. And so when the team was brought to the start line, they were probably better conditioned to do what they're setting out out to do. When you look at all the different eras in this race, you know, the Boozer King Swingley, there probably was nobody at working harder than those three guys when they dominated Lance Mackey was probably nobody uh, working as hard. Those years that Mitch won, you know, I can remember like he started training early in the summer and was putting a lot of miles uh, on those teams. And, uh, and so, um, and, and now today Dallas, you know, he's, he's obsessive. Like Dallas is a, is a, you know, obsessive guy. And, uh, and I think that's what I, I appreciate him most about him is that when he sets his mind to something um he's as hard-headed as the greatest lead dogs in the history of this race going through a coastal storm his head is down and and he's just gonna get there yeah he's a tremendous competitor and i you know i i love him in interviews i think he's been he's been great oh yeah uh, you know for the race and i know a lot of people get bored because dallas has won again but like you sit down and do one of these with him like he's fantastic oh yeah. Yeah. He's been, he's a machine like, boop, 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 you know, yeah. <laughs> so he's artwork he, when it comes to telling a story. My dad, my dad and I went back when Sean was working for him. My dad and I were, we would talk about him during the race and we'd be like the mad scientist is kind of how yeah, we totally. refer to him. And it's yeah, just totally like, is. it's, yeah. it's so just, if you even just like watch one of his clips on Facebook that he puts out, right. Like even oh. those, like those, yeah. One and a half minute clips. I'm like, I'm learning so much just from like, and you, it, it's a different perspective that like, I mean, he's grown up in it. He lives it like, so 
yeah. Um, he the when I when when I went out there to visit him, um, Sean gave me his book to read, and just talking about him being efficient on on the trail. One thing that stood out to me is how like he knows like how many times he has to walk up and down the line before the dogs are literally done eating and sleeping. You never and waste one trip up. It's down, like you know? it, just reading that section of how he attacks his training. To yeah. me, I was just like, like there, there's no one else that is thinking like that. I don't think personally, you know, oh, I think everybody else is going by feel. Right. And, and, and I think with Dallas having it all regimented, it helps him with the sleep deprivation thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Because he's got a plan. And it's not just I got to work my way through it because I'm really tired. It's like, OK, I got a plan. I got to do this. And it keeps him focused when you pull up to a, uh, You know, when you hit, pull into Koyak and you're in the top three and you're in position and now you've got to think your way through. OK, how am I feeding? How am I watering? Am I going? Am I staying? A lot of those decisions have been made by Dallas long before he shows up. Yeah, it's not always by feel. Right. He's got it. He's done it. He's done it exactly this way in training. And he's run a thousand miles, set it out on his schedule prior to the race. And this is the way he's going to do it. And um, he's going to, you know, he's going to be the favorite to win every year he runs till he's about 80. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to add to the other thing that stands out to me is like he's like, he's it seems like he's a masochist like he it literally it like i can't i don't i mean every ever anyone who finishes this race it, it's impressive that that is and yeah. one time it's impressive yeah. right yeah but like he's willing to suffer i think more than most people i think that that was another thing that also oh. stood out to I, me. I think you're right brendan i i can remember i was you know the year that that brent won you know, in that documentary, if you look, I was drawing the comparison between the two and I was calling like, you know, Brent, the wilderness guy and and Dallas, the ultimate racer. And I was drawing those parallels and he like Dallas didn't like that at all because, you know, he is the ultimate racer. But I also think if you drop Dallas in the middle of nowhere and said, you got to survive and find your way out, he might be the best that we have at that now. <laughs> right like he he's he is this combination of stuff he just happens to live on the road system and he happens to wear black and and everything is polished in his in his kennel and and his team like it's all like just perfect just perfect yeah and you know look i think dallas has probably been good at everything he's ever done because of that you know yeah he's just you know he's just that guy the work he's ethic dedication yeah, yep you know he probably doesn't sleep for three to four days at a time and and does it um so i wanted to ask your opinion about last year's race um seeing ryan get it get across the the finish line in first place in fact i was uh i was actually talking to eddie burke the other day and and we were just kind of like hypothesizing about this upcoming year's race and i was like if I were to look back at Sean and I having our conversations, I don't think Ryan was like on our list for like the top, the top three pre-race, you know, like it was like, well, uh, we know that he's going to start out hot and we'll see if he can maintain that throughout the race. 
Um, so I'm just kind of curious to like, you've seen that happen over the years with him as well. Um, but just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. And, and, and I think Ryan is like a wonderful example of evolution, right. And evolution within one's own career. I mean, he's run the race a lot and he's been extremely competitive now for quite a few years, but I've always believed that Ryan went out too fast, too early and didn't have enough left at the end. Uh, and I think if you go back and look at his rest schedule, he he had taken an extra rest. There was three or four extra hours of rest before he got the Nikolai. And I really think that set him up later in the race and kept him in position. Um, do I root for people? I try not to, but it, man, it's hard. Like, it's really hard not to. Like, you get to know these people. You know how hard they're all working. And so... You know, I, I found myself rooting for for Ryan Reddington to hang in there, even though, you know, Pete was vying for his second one. And I love Pete and Richie was right there. It would have been great to get Richie his first Iditarod championship. But, you know, um, I think the longer that I'm around this thing, I look at who I want to win oftentimes on how I want to construct that documentary. <laughs> honestly i do and so it's just like like i wanted jeff king to win a fifth so i could tell the story of king oh my and separating himself from swingley and boozer right i really so desperately wanted to do that i wanted to tell the story of a reddington finally getting to the finish line first and all of these years and all of those parallels and all of the great dogs and the stories and everything. And so, and then is Ryan, like he's like the most likable guy on the trail. Um, and, and, you know, he's quietly tough. Yeah. Ryan is quietly tough, man. And, um, you know, and I, I laugh and, and again, to draw the parallels to my other world you know, I hear coaches talk about all the time about how tough this guy is or this player, how tough he is. And I, I always roll my eyes at that because <laughs> the toughest people I've been around are, are these Iditarod mushers, right? Like the really good ones. They're, <laughs> they're be so tough funny on a to different, see. but it's true. Like it's, mm. they're t like, think about Lance Mackey. I, and I've, t I've used this comparison before. He's like a Monty Python character. I mean, everything that he dealt with, it's like you lob off an arm and he keeps coming. You lob off the other arm and, and he keeps coming. You know what I mean? Like he was that guy. When I think about Martin Boozer, I mean, I don't know if there's ever been a tougher guy in the history of the Iditarod uh, than Martin Boozer. I mean, what is it? 39 starts, never scratched. One year chopped his finger off and he went the whole way. I think he's busted bones out there uh, and never, never relinquished the desire to get to that finish line. So, yeah, I, I, uh, so back to Ryan, I was really happy that he won. Happy that for him, for his family, to see Ramey uh, emotional under that arch, to see Barb emotional under that arch, and, and then the hug in an old, you know, the, in the Reddington way, and the hats are all, you know, a little, little crooked. And you know what I mean? It was just it, like in, in Iditarod way, it was like a beautiful, it was a beautiful scene under that that arch and as fans of the race we've waited a long time to see a reddington get there and it was pretty cool when it did when it happened yeah nice. i loved it yeah nice sean yeah. do you have any questions I've, I've i've i feel like i've asked a few questions here going <laughs> well uh season's on the fly because yeah 
I, I got to take uh, a boat trip to Bristol Bay. I worked Bristol Bay this summer and uh, nice. And I went through Lake Ileana and then I didn't really know, like, I, I, so you I, went by my place. I went by your place, man. Yeah. yeah I, you where did. the place where, with the big I, red roof? Is that on the Quijack or? Yeah. So it's, it's almost, it's about two miles down from the lake edge and you, you literally went right by it. It's on yeah, an island okay. in the middle of the river. It's got a big red roof. Yes. Yeah. yeah I remember yeah, that. Stop yeah. in next time. If you guys need anything. Oh, sick. <laughs> yeah. We definitely will. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be so That's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I've owned that lodge for like seven years now. There's a TV show, you know, connected to it that markets it. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, Sean, that's my favorite river in the world to catch a trout. And I didn't own a, yeah. I don't own a lodge cause I wanted to own a lodge. It was the only thing I think that was going to protect my spot, the fish, cause everything out there is so expensive and it's all high end and you fish eight hours a day. My place is more for, you know, common Joe's that, that really love to fish. And so you can be on the river at sunrise, fish till sunset. If you want, you bring your food and you got a boat and motor GPS in the boat to keep you safe. And, and uh, it's cool. But yeah, next time stop in and say, Hey, that'd be good to see you. Yeah. That's cool. So did you spend, how do you spend like the summer there? Oh no, not the whole summer, but I'm there for, uh, you know, I open it up and close it down every year. And then I'll be there a few times throughout the summer, uh, just fishing, hanging out. And uh, I think in another month, I'm going to own another place on the other side of Bristol Bay out of Dillingham. So we'll have okay. a few lodges out there. So we'll be able to bounce back and forth. So if you guys like to to fly fish or spin cast fish, sport fish. I need like to learn. Commercial guy. I'm yeah, always well, pulling fish out of the net and I'm like, oh, this uh, sport fishing thing. You know, it seems like, oh, I got to catch like one fish at a time. Are you kidding me? No, <laughs> dude, you've been ruined. You've been ruined. Yeah, you've been ruined. Because Bruce Lee's the same way. You know, he grew up with uh, out there. He lived up in the Kobuk for all those years with subsistence nets. So like catching one at a time, I, he, he can't relate to that either. <laughs> I, I always enjoy going fishing with friends and just like be outside and have a have a beer it's or something. A good spot, and, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's always a cold beer there, I'm sure. So stop in.